Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Let's open our Bibles for the book of Matthew, please. The Sermon on the Mount. You'd say, uh, what is the greatest sermon ever preached? Well, you'd say, well, that must have been last week's uh, message by Pastor. And, uh, well, I thank you for the vote, but uh, no, uh, the greatest sermon ever preached was all in one setting at one moment. And you talk about a wide variety of subjects, from happiness to divorce and remarriage to heaven. I mean, Jesus covered the, the gamut, I tell you for sure. We are uh, in the beginning of the message, and Jesus begins to speak about happiness. This is message number four. We're planning on just taking our time and uh, listening to Jesus closely as he preaches this sermon. Our thought was to take at least two Beatitudes of the each couple of weeks. And so we are now in our fourth message in Beatitude number uh, five and six. Happiness is having an attitude of mercy towards other and living in the pursuit of purity. Where does happiness come from? Where does it actually originate? Medical science has done some imaging studies, and they say that the happiness response originates in the limbic cortex and the precuneus, if I'm saying that correctly. They have found that people with larger gray matter volume in the right precuneus reported being happier. Larger gray matter? Well, that leaves some of us out. But uh, that's the idea, that gray matter is where happiness comes from. In a 2007 study, they found that friendship variables accounted for 58% of happiness. I'm supposing then, if you're low on friends, (laughs) you're out of luck, bad for you. Another research shows that it's gene code factors, and they account for 35 to 50% of our happiness. Gene code, well, I guess if you either have it or you don't, if you don't, well, out of luck. There's also evidence that people who receive an unexpected financial windfall, like a lottery win, which I know you would never get involved in, or an inheritance, are happier in the year following that big windfall. But it's been shown that the effect doesn't last. That being the case, most Americans should be happy then because they got a little blessing from Uncle Joe and Aunt Nancy this last year, and I hope you're happy with that. And so this morning, is it biology? Is it relationships? Is it our gene code? Is it the amount of money we have? Likely all of those have an influence. But according to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he said, Happiness is an inside job. In fact, he said there are eight different attitudes. That's why they're oftentimes called the B attitudes. 
attitudes that ought to be, eight of them to change our life. Now, the culture in first century Israel was just very religious, but shallow, very largely external. The trappings of all this culture left people cold and guilt-ridden, often worse off than they had not anything to begin with. The political situation was oppressive. Imperial Rome underneath Augustus, the first emperor of Rome, and then Tiberius, his son, was suffocating. And it trickled down to the financial world, to their freedoms. And so when this countercultural rabbi by the name of Jesus of Nazareth began to speak, the audience was hungry. Our Lord makes the way up that Galilean hill. He sits down on a big rock. He scans the crowd. And like a judge issuing a command, he looks up and the Bible says very distinctly that he lifted up his voice. And so with just the sound of maybe a little wind or a few birds, everybody's waiting. What is this man going to say? With a loud voice, he booms it out. Who wants to be happy? He commanded their attention. And then with an absolutely astonishing cold open, he said, if you want to be happy, there are eight things you need to do. Boom, boom, boom. And he starts listing them. He said, these are internal qualities. The first four are very definitely things that take place in the heart. The last four are those that after having taken place in the heart, these are an outgrowth. These are actions. And so these beatitudes, yes, are commands. But as much as anything, there are characteristics. Remember now, Jesus is portraying life as a, in, the, in the new kingdom. And so these are kingdom characteristics of those who are part of God's royal family. And if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are part of that royal priesthood. And God has made you part of his family. And so this morning, we look forward to this great truth. And pray with me if you would. Father, bless us this morning. I'm so thrilled and excited, and thank you for this good crowd, and for those that are listening online, we love them. God, would you help us to just really receive this today? Help us to understand it and put it into practice. Amen. Blessed are the merciful. The late American evangelist Billy Graham said, the greatest news of all is the fact that our God is a God of mercy. Amen and amen. A God of mercy. What does mercy look like? And that's what Jesus is going to tell us. Let's read verse number seven together, if you would, please. Ready out loud. You can look here if you don't have a King James Version, but you can read it with us. Ready, begin. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This must have been a taser jolt of information to these everyday people who said merciful, <laughs> shocking, because their existence was exactly the opposite. Very little was done merciful. In fact, if anything, it was merciless. The Jewish leaders were ruthless. The Roman colonizers were brutal and cruel. In fact, many of these Jewish people were Slaves, And underneath that culture, if a Roman citizen didn't want a slave anymore, he literally could take out his knife 
He could slit their throat. He could run out there, put them in a grave, bury them, and nothing would happen to them. And yet Jesus Christ came into this world as the most merciful human to ever live. Ever walked the face of this earth. He embodied what mercy really is. He talked to people that nobody else would even speak to. He touched those that nobody else would even come close to. He ministered to the outcast and to the outlaw. His ministry was a ministry of mercy. He was mega mercy. And so there's none better to explain what mercy really is. And so let's go through our outline that we have been forming for the last couple of weeks. First of all, number one, the explanation. What is this mercy? Notice what Jesus says, first of all, blessed. That is the Greek word makarios. It means blessed by God, a state of blessing, not merely a feeling, not merely something nice that happens. Nice things happen to everybody, frankly. I mean, people who are just some very nasty, evil people still have nice things happen to them. They might even say this is a blessing from God. And in the general sense of the word, it is a blessing. But in the scriptural sense, no, it's not a blessing because the very word means it is being favored by God. It is something that comes because God wants to put a blessing on you. Blessed, a favor of God are those who are merciful. What does the word mercy mean? The word mercy means this. It means an actively compassionate. Actively compassionate. It is a practical concern for people in their need. Now, there's lots of definitions for mercy, but in this passage and in this particular place, this word means an active, practical concern for people in their need. People with this particular trait are people who are truly merciful. They're full of mercy. They possess a full heart of God-given compassion and it translates into actual deeds. In the book of Hebrews chapter two, the writer reminds the Jewish believers, and of course us too, Jesus didn't come into this earth because he needed a vacation. He didn't come into this earth because he wanted to spend time with those wonderful angels. No, look at verse 17. Wherefore, in all things, Jesus experienced all things just like we. He with all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he would call me his brother, I, I'm at hard to imagine, that he might be what? A merciful and faithful high priest. Thank God that we have a faithful and merciful high priest in the things pertaining to God, which is the main reason was to make reconciliation for the sins of our people. And we've got plenty of those. Christ experienced everything that we've ever or ever will experience. All my heartaches and all my troubles. He is a merciful high priest. Nobody else was as merciful. Nobody has ever been as kind and as loving. And thank God for it because we needed his love. I uh, brought a friend with me this morning. And I, and I know this little guy is a Pretty scary looking guy. This is uh, Jocko. And I know for some of you young people, you, you may know this is why I turned out the way I turned out. But uh, this, is, uh, this is my friend. He used to sit in my room. And 
this guy's kind of a scary looking guy between him and the persecution of my sister. I tell you what, I was had a rough time, but uh, my sister's visiting here today. But uh, this is Jocko. And uh, as far as I know, it's about the only thing I have other than a few pictures from when I was a child. But uh, Jocko's got a little problems. He doesn't have a hand anymore. And he's losing one. He's got one ear gone, about, about like I am here. But, uh, and he's a little bit threadbare. I thought of uh, little Jocko this week because uh, I read a story about a, a man who went and visited a home. There in this home, there were five little children, like one of our home church families. He was trying to be sort of a spiritual godfather to these children, so he attempted to get involved with them in their, on their level. He asked one of the little daughters about her doll collection. He said, which one of these dolls is your favorite? And she looked at him and said, well, you promise me you won't laugh if I tell you? She answered. I won't laugh, he said. And she went into the next room, brought back a doll, was the most dilapidated, tattered, worn-out doll, not a whole lot unlike Jocko here. Hair was missing, nose mostly broken off. I mean, this doll was ready for the trash. Trying to hide his surprise, he said, why do you love this one the most? And the little girl, half whispering, because she needs it the most. And if I didn't love her, nobody else would. <laughs> Folks, friends, why did a merciful God love you and I? Because if he didn't, nobody else would. Friends, that is God's mercy. And that's what Jesus said to these people. I know those Roman colonizers don't love you. I know that the religious uh, false leaders don't love you, but I do. And I think you ought to show God's love and mercy to others. That's what mercy is. It is a practical, concerned, loving people that nobody else will. Now the examination, number two, what it is not. First of all, it is not a excuse me, a sentimental sympathy. I'll get it out. It is very possible to have a very deep, slushy, mushy, drippy, emotional feeling, and yet never really do anything to get involved. It is false, it is weak, it is often just emotion-based, and frankly, unfortunately, it all too often cancels out the justice of God. It allows people to not take responsibility. It is a glossing over of their sin. That is not what mercy is. Example, during the first kingdom of Israel, the first monarch of Israel, Saul, God commanded Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, you need to take care of these Amalekites. These people are some evil group. They need to be eradicated. And so after uh, repeated uh, chances to change, God said, we've got to take care of this nation. And so Saul, instead of following the Lord's command, oh, sentimental Saul, look what it says in verse 9, but Saul and the people, I'm sure he led them, spared Agag, that was the king, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatlings, and the lambs. Finally, the prophet came and confronted Saul and said, why in the world, after you have received the clear command of God to get rid of these people, why did you spare them? And I'm sure old 
King Saul said, hey, wait a second. What did the sheep do? And, I mean, Agag, yeah, he's got his problems, but he's a good guy. And uh, besides, Saul said, I'm going to take these sheep and I'm going to sacrifice to the Lord. And you remember the prophet saying, no, look, God wants obedience. He's not interested in your sentimental mercy. That is not true mercy at all. And so first of all, real mercy is not sentimental sympathy. It is not also a false mercy. It is not a false mercy, which actually opposes the righteousness of God. False mercy actually encourages people in evil. If sin can be committed without people feeling guilt or shame, then we've actually just given a license to evil. Unfortunately, that's what's happened in our nation. David boldly warned his nation in Psalm 9 and verse 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell. Don't ever imagine anything different. And any nation that forgets God. Folks, it's clear. You'd say, well, shouldn't there be mercy for people? Absolutely. Thank God. Yes. God is a God of mercy. But God put into place a vehicle to get the mercy of God. What is that vehicle that God put into place? It is called repentance. Anybody, and I'm not kidding, folks, anybody, you could name the most vile, wicked, evil, terrible person that you can imagine, even in history. And yet, if that person would genuinely repent, they would receive the mercy of God. But remember, this is not just a canceling of the sin. It is a repenting of the sin. It actually acknowledges the sin, whereas a false mercy doesn't acknowledge it. That's the difference. And so when we talk about mercy, people say, well, I think we ought to be more merciful. Real mercy acknowledges sin. It is not a false mercy. It is not a sentimental sympathy. And number three, it is not a passive pity. Feelings of mercy, unless they actually play out, are not real mercy. For example, in David's personal journey, his great Psalm 18, which was a great testimony of his life, he said, you know what I found? God always not just possesses mercy, but he shows mercy. They're not mere words to God. Look what he said, Psalm 18, verse 25, with the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. God not only has mercy, he shows it. And that's what we're here to remind ourselves of, is that real mercy has compassion. In fact, that's uh, actually in Matthew chapter 5 here, the word mercy is the word compassion. That's the actual meaning of the word. Compassion. The English word compassion comes from two words. Come, meaning with. Passion, meaning feeling. And so that we have feelings like that person. We actually get into the skin of that person. We feel their need. We care for them in a tangible way. One man finding his newly appointed pastor standing at the study window of the inner city church looked out over the city's tragic conditions. The layman saw him there standing weeping he tried to console this new pastor. He said, Pastor, don't worry. After you've been here for a while, 
You'll get used to it. The minister responded, yes, I know. And that's why I'm weeping. We get too used to seeing people hurting and we forget to have compassion. What is biblical compassion? What is biblical mercy? It includes three distinct elements. Number one, it's recognition. Number one, it is recognition. I actually see the need. So many people today don't even want to see the need. Oh, don't look over there. Don't look a homeless person in the eye. I see the need. It is not only recognition, it is motivation. I am moved by the need. Moved in my spirit, moved in my heart to do something. It is also action. I then endeavor to meet the need. A good example would be the Apostle Paul in Titus chapter 3 and verse number 5. In Titus chapter 3 and verse number 5, God said the greatest example of someone who has compassion, our Lord and Savior Jesus. Here, the young pastor there, Evangelist Titus, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. He didn't save us because we had so much to be saved for. He didn't save us because we had so much going for us. He just saved us because of his compassion. He saved us. He did something about it. That's why when we sing the old hymn at Calvary, we're correct. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty. Where? At Calvary. At Calvary, the greatest example of compassion and mercy. Explanation, what it is. Examination, what it is not. And now exhortation. How do we bring about mercy in our lives? First of all, a godly cultivation. One of the surest tests of mercy, what would it be? How do we, ex how do we exemplify mercy? Seeking the lost. The greatest way to show mercy is by caring about the lost souls around us. I think Jesus was perhaps the greatest example of Two things, praying. He prayed and he also kept inviting people. Look what it says in Luke 23 and verse 34. Then Jesus on the cross with everything else going around him, he cares about lost souls. There on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. You'd say, oh, pastor, I don't think I can have that kind of an attitude. It's impossible to have mercy for some people. Yes, I might add, it is impossible for us as natural men to have mercy like that. But thank God it's not him possible because with Jesus, him makes it possible for me to love the lost. I think a great parallel passage is the great Sermon on the Mount of Luke chapter six. Remember now the the Gospels are called synoptic, meaning the same look. Luke chapter 6, a more brief explanation of the Sermon on the Mount. But there it says, Be therefore merciful as your Father is merciful. God is the source of my mercy. He is the founder of mercy. How merciful are you this morning? We say, well, oh, I don't know. I, I really felt bad for those people. Yeah, but we, did we do something about it? Oh, I really, uh, yeah, I, my heart went out to him. Yes, but 
Did we do something about it? And have you prayed for someone who was lost? Have you actually, do you have a lost person on your prayer list? Surely you have a lost neighbor or a lost coworker or maybe a lost family member. Surely you have somebody that doesn't know the Lord. You know what? If you begin to pray for them, maybe weekly, maybe even daily, maybe monthly, whatever your particular way is. But I'll tell you this. If you will pray for the lost, you are showing the heart of God who in mercy, Jesus on the cross. What did he do? What did he do? He prayed for the lost. Now, I don't know really how it all works. I mean, God's not going to just step in and make that person saved regardless of their will. But he, what he will do is this. Because of my prayers, he'll bring people into that person's life. And one way I know he does that, because I'm praying for a friend in Texas to get saved. And then I get so burdened, I call up a church and say, would you go visit my friend? And then God blesses that action, and they go give him an opportunity to receive the gospel. I believe that God blesses prayers because we are actively in our mercy reaching out to those people. And so I think the biggest example of having mercy is number one, praying for the lost. And I think number two, it is inviting the lost. You know, I think that too often we just go about our life and we forget people and we don't actually ever invite people. We'd say, oh, well, you know, I'm just a nice person and that's, gonna, that's enough. I'm sure they'll see my life. And uh, no, folks, uh, just the fact that they see us, they have no idea that uh, we're uh, connected to Jesus. I mean, they might, but we could have gone, you know, we could be drunk or something. And we're, you know, some drunk people are really nice, you know, I don't know. Or we're high on marijuana or something. But when we be, invite them to church, that makes a huge difference. That's why, especially this time of the year, it's really great. We have these little invitations. And uh, this week, Pauline and I reached out to an optician. She was getting some glasses there. When we were done, I said, hey, I've got some free tickets. And the way I do it is, I don't show them this side, the pretty side. They can look at that later. Oh, isn't that pretty? I show them the ticket side. I said, and I give them two or three, you know, and said, here, here are some free tickets to the most amazing theatrical production you've ever seen. It has a tremendous holiday concert and all kinds of pageantry and uh, really, oh, and the lady we gave it to, she said, oh, I absolutely love theater, thank you. She grabbed those things, kind of held it to her heart. She said, I can't wait to be there. Folks, we ought to be just passing these out like crazy people. And I mean, pass up two or three and say, if they say, well, can I have more? Say, well, I'll get you more, but they can come on those tickets right there. There's actually no actual entrance charge, but give them a ticket there and say, if you want to find out more information about it, scan that little, uh, what do they call that code? But scan that and you'll be able to uh, see more about it. Folks, that's mercy. Praying for the lost, inviting the lost. Praying for the lost, inviting the lost. Mercy is not just a feeling. Mercy is not just a, you know, a sense of this emotion. No, it is actually doing something. It's compassion for the lost. That's the number one thing about mercy. Well, a, a godly cultivation. And then, thank God, there is a glorious motivation. Look at the last part of verse 7. They shall obtain mercy. If we're merciful, what happens? We obtain mercy. Now, God is not saying... Like, unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church, 
If you display mercy, you'll receive the mercy of God and you'll get to go to heaven. No, that's not what this means. It is not saying if you show mercy, you get to go to heaven. It's saying if you show mercy, you display that mercy has taken place in your heart. You display that Jesus is in your heart. He's not saying that God's mercy depends on our mercy. What he's saying is, is when you see God's mercy, it will translate down here to see and reach out to other people. Biologists tell us there is a unique species of fish in South America. In South America, this four-eyed fish lives in the brackish waters of South America. And they said, and it has an unusual characteristic, might even have a picture of it here. The creator designed its bulging eyes, two on the top and two on the bottom. The air lens are on the top so that they can actually cruise along the surface of the water and look around. And they also have two eyes on the bottom. They can look at the world below. I was thinking about that as I read about that. Did you know that believers are the, really have that same or should have that same outlook? We have a heavenly outlook with two eyes. We're focused on God's real mercy, but we're not so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. We have the other two eyes focused on earth to look for opportunities to reach out with the compassion and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Maybe we could say we need to have four-eyed living. We ought to, people say, hey, four eyes. Well, there you go. That's a good thing. And that's what Solomon said in Proverbs 11, verse 17. He said, the merciful man does good to his own soul, but he that is cruel troubles his own flesh. Basically, you want to be miserable? Then just don't have any mercy. But if you want to have happiness, show mercy towards others. Have a heavenly look at the mercy of God and then display it to others. All right. Now let's move on to the sixth beatitude. Happiness is in the pursuit of purity. Now there is nothing in which we as humans might imagine anymore that true happiness consists of is that a uncontrolled indulgence of every and all passions. When Jesus said here, happiness is in the pursuit, is in a hunger, is in a passion, they'd say, oh yeah, every man there on that Galilean hill was frustrated. Every woman on that hill was silently longing for a real emotional connection. Every young person was secretly longing to indulge every desire they've ever had. And so in their mind, when Jesus said, you ought to be strong and have a desire. Oh, yeah, that's right. And then he dropped the bomb on them. You talk about dropping the mic. He said, no, contrary to what you're thinking, it is not uncontrolled passion. It is not a passion for something you're thinking about on this earth. No, it is not a letting go of your morals. It is a letting God into your life. It is a purity of life. Look at verse 8. In fact, let's read it together. It's Matthew 5 and verse 8. Ready? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, these people were hopeless. Basically, they were like, man, if I can just make it another day, I'm doing good. But Jesus said, you can have happiness. You can 
really see something more than you've ever had before. You can see God. And people were desperate for that. Like Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these things, but thou doest. Except God be with him. Except God be with him. You're a God person and I want to know something about that. They wanted something real, something happy. And so Jesus said, all right, good. Blessed are the pure in heart for they. Actually, that Greek word there is the Greek word for auto, they, and they alone, meaning singular. Only those who are pure in heart. All right, first of all, let's look at the explanation of this verse. What does it mean to be pure in heart? The word heart is the Greek word cardia, from which we get our word cardiac. In the Bible, it is the seat of thinking. Now be careful. As an English meaning, we imagine cardia or heart to be the seat of our emotions. And in some respect, that's true. But in scripture, the heart really is mainly that which we think. For example, in, in um, Proverbs chapter 23 and verse number seven, as a man thinketh in his heart. Oh, so thinking comes from the heart. Now, if the Bible wants to talk about our emotions, it actually doesn't use the word heart. It oftentimes uses the word bowels. <laughs> kind of funny. It says the bowels of your compassion. In fact, he even says it's like a feeling in your liver. <laughs> Strange as it is. It kind of reminds me of the jilted man who said, I thought I would never find true love until a beautiful woman stole my heart. And then she stole my kidneys and my corneas and my lungs and my house and my car. But anyway, um, there we go. What is it that we are, as a heart thinketh, we're supposed to think. And what does it say there? It says, as the pure in heart. The pure in heart. Now the word pure is the uh, Greek word katharos. We get the word cathartic or cleansing from it. Warren Wiersbe, the Bible teacher, says that this word has two basic meanings, clean and unmixed. Typically in medical science, the word uh, catharsis is a word for clean. But in this phrase, it's not clean, it's actually unmixed. The idea is of a milk that's pure, not adulterated with water. Gold with the dross removed, unmixed with impurities, it's pure gold. Wheat where the chaff is gone, it's pure wheat. Or maybe an army without defectors, it's pure in their goals and pure in their motivation. Then the idea is a singleness of heart. And so this verse is not talking about moral purity, although that is a way to connect with God, I'm sure. But this verse is talking about a singleness of heart. For example, the Apostle Paul talking about his ministry in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13, he said, this one thing I do. He wasn't meaning he only did one thing in life. He was just saying, the goal of my life, when I pray, it's with one goal. When I serve, it's with one goal. Whatever I do, it's with one goal. What was that goal? Pleasing the Lord, bringing glory to God. Pure motives from a pure heart. A counselor once said that he tells his counselees, you're only as sick as your secrets. You're only as sick as your secrets. 
When you have more to hide, you're sicker. And if you've got a lot of secrets that you don't want to sell, the fact is you have an impure heart in the sense of an adulterated heart. It's not a pure, single heart for God. Is my life an open book? Or do you have things that you're hiding from everybody? Hiding from someone you love, hiding from your friends, hiding from God. Folks, that's not going to work. You'll never be happy until you're single-minded, unmixed, pure is the word. The explanation of what it is. The examination now, what it is not. First of all, it is not about being more pure than others. It is not about being more pure than others. You see, we tend to measure our purity by human criteria. The great apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he said, you know, when it comes to ministry, we have so many people comparing. These false teachers are big with that, he said. Look what he said in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. We dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves, comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Folks, that's just a Another way to say, it is stupid to compare yourself with other people. Stupid. And it's certainly, as it says here, you'll never really be happy, never see God. Because when we have a pure mind, we're focused on the Lord. I asked a wonderful, a quality young father, uh, unsaved, uh, at least I imagined he was. And after talking to him, I, I pretty much confirmed. I talked to him and I said, have you ever been to church much? Are you a Christian? And you know much about God? He said, no, not really. He said, never really went to church. He said, I just kind of always was taught to be a, a good person. And he said, I've just basically tried to live my life that way. Fact was, he was a good person. He was a married man, as far as I know, lived a very moral life, had a good job. He was one of our protectors here in, in our area, and I thank the Lord for him. I said, you know, I want to just commend you for being a, a good man and having that as your goal. Frankly, uh, too many people don't have that as their goal. So I thank you for that. But I said, here is the problem. I said, do you realize that good is a re relative term? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I said, good meaning good against what? I mean, what are you comparing yourself? When you say you're good, what are you comparing yourself to? Well, that's the big question. Because, my friend, that concept can spiral way out of control. In fact, the Pharisees were absolute masters at this. Look what it says in Luke chapter 18, verse number 11. The Pharisees stood, prayed thus with himself. By the way, that's exactly as far as the prayer went. It didn't go even to the top of his head. He prayed with himself. God, I thank thee. He wasn't going to God. That I am not as other men are. Oh, no extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. His standard of purity was anybody lower than himself. Now, folks, that kind of concept is crazy. So I find someone lower than me, they're bad. That person finds someone lower than them, and they feel good about themselves because, well, I may not be up here, but I'm not down there. And nowadays, the standard of morality is totally, like it's upside down. I mean, anymore, people that go to church, believe the Bible, and live for God, sometimes are even considered immoral. They're haters or they're, you know, intolerant. And so the whole concept of what's good and bad, it's like, it's all crazy today, folks. And if that's the case, 
if we're comparing ourselves with somebody else, we can always find ourselves being a good person. That's why when you talk to people and you ask if they're a good person, 99% of them say, yeah, I'm a good person. I rarely have ever met anybody that say, no, I'm not really. Not really a very good person. Now, occasionally I do. But most of the time they say, no, you know, I'm a, I'm a good person. It's all relative. And that's why God is saying here, purity is not comparing yourselves to somebody else. It's comparing ourselves to God's standard. There are three approaches to religion, I think, that can illustrate true purity. Number one, there's head religion. Head religion is one that trusts in a creed and a system. Then there's hand religion. By the way, it never goes any further than the head. Then there's hand religion that trusts in a good deed. And then, thank the Lord, there's true religion, heart religion, based on a seed that's been implanted by the purity of God. There you go. Head religion, it's a creed. Hand religion, it's a deed. Heart religion, it is a seed placed there by God himself. What it is not, it is not about being more pure than others. Number two, it is not about being perfect. Now theologians tell us there are five types of purity. First of all, there is primitive purity. Primitive purity only exists in God. I cannot have his purity because it is part of his nature. It is as essential to God as wet is to water. There is created purity, purity that was in Adam and Eve before the fall. You might call it innocent purity or untested purity. Then there is ultimate purity. Hallelujah for ultimate purity. Someday we shall be ultimately pure. We're going to be dwelling with God in a holy heaven. Be no criminals in heaven, folks. We, uh, for years, I would preach at the the wonderful downtown Baptist Church of Sacramento, a delightful inner city church, pastored by my friend uh, Dick Hedger, and uh, just a beautiful church, and served uh, oftentimes the downtown uh, people there. And there was this precious lady who uh, just just about every Thanksgiving would get up and sing. He would ask her to sing a cappella, and she would sing, uh, "This train is going to heaven." And this train don't have no gamblers on it. And this train don't have no drunkards on it. And this train, and I mean, it was a good song. And it went on forever. I guess she just repeated anything she didn't like. And uh, this train don't have no child, wife beaters. And this train, she just keep on going, you know. And the fact of the matter is, she's right. There is an ultimate purity that happens when we get saved and we die and go to heaven. Thank God, we're pure. Then there is positional purity. Thank the Lord that is actually a purity that we have right now. Every born-again person has, has the imputed righteousness of God. That's why when someone says, when Jesus looks at me, he sees me as 100% pure. That's an amazing thing. Then there is practical purity. And this is where the rub comes. This is where the hard part is, and this is what we're talking about today, practical purity. It's often misunderstood. People sometimes say, wait a second, I thought we have positional purity. We do. But there's something called dispositional purity. Yes, my position is pure, but what's your disposition like? My standing in Christ is secure, but my state in Christ is not always secure. Meaning, my uh, purity before God 
settled. But my purity before man, that's optional. I need to do something about that purity. That's why the Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, verse number 1, he said, having therefore these promises, all this wonderful thing about the positional purity of God is wonderful. Dearly beloved, having all these wonderful promises, yes, amen, let us, now this is our job, this is my job now, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting, that's my daily journey, sanctifying by the practical outworking of God's purity. Yes, as someone has said, the greatest gift if you can give to another person is the purity of your attention. And blessed are those who are purely focused on God. And now let's come to the exhortation. The Bible says they, specifically they, thank the Lord for Greek lexicons that kind of teach us some of these things. They see God. People who have a singleness of heart see God. That is in the continuous sense, meaning they keep seeing God. Single-minded people live in the presence of God. They live in the glorious presence of the Lord. Kind of like what Moses said in Exodus 33, show me thy glory. Oh God, I see your glory. A heart pure person can see God in nature. A heart pure person can see God in scripture. A heart pure person can see God in his church. I had a man, a woman, a couple I think it was, not too long ago, or I guess it's been a couple years now, and they said, Pastor, I'm just not feeling it anymore. And so that was their exit uh, speech, you know, they pretty much never saw him again. I'm just not feeling it anymore. I'm not seeing it anymore. Friends, you only see what you're looking for. I've often said, you know what, if you can come to this church and you can walk out without getting a blessing, <laughs> I think you have a broken blesser. It's some way, I mean, it's dysfunctional, folks. I mean, all that God is doing, it is miraculous. What part of miraculous don't you like? That's because you don't see it. Have you ever heard of the Bader Meinhof phenomenon? If you've been to college, maybe psychology class, it's a big old word, but actually it's a very common principle. It's called the frequency bias. Have you ever noticed when you get something new, let's say, or receive something or hear something new, for instance, a new word or a you see or a new uh, breed of dog or a particular house or a car, that's a big one, a car, maybe that you were even thinking about, and then suddenly you see it everywhere. I mean, it's absolutely everywhere. Now, in reality, there's no increases of the occurrence. It's just that you start to notice it because you have been alerted to it. Now, psychologists tell us that's um, perfectly normal. We're just reinforcing information. But I will say that I think it kind of illustrates really from an actual standpoint, not just psychological, of why many people never see God. They don't see God because they're not looking for Him. When you look for Him, you'll see Him. You know, this is Christmas season. It's coming. Did you know most of the world didn't see Christmas when it came? 
I mean, the writings of China, the writings of India, the writings of even most of the Middle East, even Rome, the original writings there. Did you know they didn't have any clue about Jesus Christ? I mean, we are so baptized in it and we're so aware of the story. Why? Because you see it. You look for it. But those that don't look for it, they didn't see it. I mean, people walked right by that stable, had not a clue that the Savior of mankind was being born in that stable. They weren't looking for it. The verse says, when you are single in heart, then you see God. Maybe that's what Pastor Peter meant when he said in Acts 15, in verse number 9, how do we make our heart pure? Number one, by faith. Purify your hearts by faith. And number two, by facts. Not just any facts, but scripture. John 15, 3, you are clean through the word. Friends, if you will trust Jesus with your soul and you will baptize yourself on the word of God, you'll start seeing God everywhere. Amen. On La Palma, the Canary Islands, sitting atop an extinct volcano, 8,000 feet above the earth, above the clouds, near the equator, is an amazing telescope. That telescope there sits above and can see so much, all of the northern hemisphere, they say, and much of the southern because of its position. It's a fascinating telescope and they chose it specifically because of its height and because of its above the dull and the din of the clouds and the lights. And I got to thinking, you know, Jesus took his followers to a mountainside, maybe just to get them away so they could look at something, see it more clearly. And today, I believe that if we would purify our hearts by the faith of the gospel, and if we were just beginning to look in the word, it'd be like us just going up at the top of that place and we could begin to see the handiwork of God. We would have light we've never seen. We'd see things we've never seen because of our total surrender to God. God says the pure in heart see God. The merciful, they receive mercy. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.